Thank you. Well, good evening. Are we on? Oh, good. We're all okay. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me, even though you had no choice in it. It was um, John Mark. But <clears throat> rumour has it that it was you guys who chose to look at the spiritual practice around spiritual warfare. Good choice. This is a topic um, where ignorance is not bliss. In my life, in your life, in the cities that we live, and in understanding the realm that we are in, this is centrally important. Watchman Nee actually says that the, the chief dispute in the world has got to do with who has authority and who deserves to be worshipped. In our psyche and in our understanding of how the world works. And so this stuff is real. But when I think around or about spiritual warfare, I think of Ignaz Simmelweis. Say his name, Ignaz Simmelweis. He is a Hungarian physician who worked in Vienna in the 1850s and he looked after two wards. So there'd be delivery. I haven't started my timer. Start, yes, okay. I've got an extra two minutes. He looked after the delivery of babies and he looked after two wards. And there was no reason why there was two wards other than there needed to be two wards. But one of the things that did not make sense and it caused him a lot of grief was there was an uncanny amount of deaths in one particular ward. 20 times the mortality rate in one ward compared to the other. This made no rational sense. He could not understand why this was the case, and he did a lot of research as to why. The only thing that was obvious was one ward was run by midwives, being female, and the other one was by doctors, being male. But he was pretty sure that was not the case, and it was not the case until he realised that one of the physicians had just done an autopsy, a dissecting of the dead, which happened to be at the end of one of the wards where the death mortality was high. And he happened to die of the same disease as the women were dying giving birth. Science couldn't prove this. They didn't have microscopes or anything. And in investigating this further, he realised that more often than not, these doctors were going from working with the dead, doing autopsies, going straight, no washing of hands, no antiseptic, no nothing, and then delivering children. And he was one of the forefathers to discover germs. Couldn't see them by the naked eye. But these were the things that were prolific and were actually causing death on one end, but life on the other, or affecting where there could be life on the other. When I heard this story, I was like, this is the demonic this is that spiritual world. You know it's there, but you can't see it. It has this effect. Something that in its proliferation creates tremendous death. And no one believed him because he couldn't prove it scientifically. Until 100 years later, the invention of microscopes, so on and so forth, revealed that he was actually accurate. He was right. There was something sinister going on. And so this not seen but real world is real. And there'll be some people in the room that have experienced that in overt ways. I, I have experienced it in overt ways. There'll be some people in this room who have experienced it in subtle ways. But every single one of us has experienced this in one way, shape or form. Jesus himself says that the devil or Satan is the ruler of this world three times. 
Paul says that the um, devil is the prince of the power of the air. I don't even really understand what that phrase is, but it makes sense. It's like it's in our atmosphere. We're breathing it in. It's toxic. There's a pollutant. It's like being on a clear and beautiful sunny day, having a picnic, and it's beautiful and everything's right, and then just the, the weather turns. And something's not okay in the depths of our souls, and it's like we're homesick for a place we haven't even been yet, but we know that life is not how it's meant to be. There is a prince of the power of the air who is determined to fill the atmosphere of Portland, of the states of your life, with darkness. And this battle of death and life occurs all the time. I want to take you through something um, tonight. I want to really camp out in Luke 4. And I want to have a look at what Jesus did about this, particularly as a human. But to get us there, we're going to have a look at Genesis chapter 3. And I know that you guys have already looked at this passage, particularly in this series. I think this is week five on the devil. You guys go to town of Bridgetown. Like, if you're going to do a topic, we like will do one or two. You like five weeks. Well, it doesn't even finish. There's six or seven on the devil. This is great. We're going to do this at home. I'm determined because it's that important. And as I said, this is not a topic where ignorance is bliss. There are ways in which you don't even know that you're participating against your own knowledge or will with this prince of darkness. And it's vital that we understand it. So looking at Genesis chapter 3, I happen to be reading from the ESV. I'm usually an NIV girl. Anyone else an NIV person? Yeah. I like to mix it up every now and then because my brain gets, predicts what's going to happen. So I'm in a new adventure at the moment in the ESV. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We have here this beautiful garden where shalom, where wholeness existed. And God lived in perfect relationship with creation. Man lived in perfect relationship with that creation, with each other and with God. And it had within it all the potential to make this world perfect. It had within it all the ingredients it needed for us to go out and multiply and flourish. And in this incident, we have a creature who is created, the serpent, more crafty. And he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is a subtle deceit. It's not an overt, obvious lie. But in your life, you will have that little voice that sneaks in that says, did God actually say that I should do this with my money? Did he actually say that I should help that person? Did he actually say that he loves me? Did God actually say? And in these subtle acts of deceit, what the enemy does is he just twists the truth enough to create a window of doubt in your psyche, which is the same word for soul, to then come in with a temptation and then get you to doubt God's nature. And if he can do those things and he gets that foothold and he can, he can do worse, as we find out later on. But when he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's so subtle. But did God actually say that? Did I hear a no? Any more no's out there? What did God actually say? Yeah. If you go to Genesis 2, verse 16, God says, I'm giving you everything. I give you every tree that is here and all the abundance that is this garden, all of it is yours. 
And so in your psyche, there will be, in your DNA as a a human being in the flesh, this sense that God is holding out on you. That he says no to one thing, which makes you feel like it's no to everything. But his heart and his life for you is one of abundance and purpose and pleasure and flourishing. And he doesn't give as the world gives. But what he does give is good. And there's a perspective thing here that is vitally important that's hidden in the text. But Eve gets it. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Satan, having tried to deceive and that not work, goes for like a blatant lie. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. This is the father of lies. I know you've looked at that before, but I cannot emphasize enough to you how much this is true. He is the father of lies. He has no truth in him. He cannot tell the truth. Whether it's a subtle twist with deceit or whether it's a blatant lie, everything that comes out of his mouth and all that he is doing is lies. And everything that he is against is against the glory of the image of God that is in you and is against the glory of the image of God that is in this world and you knowing the truth. And he knows if he does it, obviously it won't work. So he does it subtly. And in this case, take two with the woman, he says a blatant lie and then goes in for the kill with a great temptation. Verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, and it goes on from there, and we end up in Genesis, uh, yeah, Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, and why money is important. So, which is true, P.S., by the way. Something happens here that I relate to as a human being, but I'm annoyed. I'm really annoyed, because this isn't just a Sunday school story that's in our yesteryear, or if you're new to faith, a story that is vital for you to understand the foundations of your faith as to why we're in the condition that we are in. I just do not understand. Why didn't Eve, the woman, why didn't she just say, this sounds good, but I'm just going to check. So when you look at this, it's not in black and white in the text, but I see it in the subtext of my ESV version. And I realise... She did not trust God's character. She did not trust that the creator of the world had the best plan for life and for flourishing. Because if she trusted him, she would have gone back and asked him. And so with this little formula of an enemy who twists the truth enough to create doubt, to marry that with a temptation, we have this awful marrying of flesh and sin and this tremendous fall that happens that you and I now live in the consequences of. The curse of death takes over, lies take over, and Jeremiah and Romans both say that we, in this act, exchange the glory of God for a lie. I want you to think about that for a second. The glory of God we had in its fullness, in full access, and we gave that up to take on a lie. And we're desperate to get that back. 
And not only are we desperate to get that back, but God is desperate to prove his faithfulness and his character. So the rest of this Old Testament, this whole section of the Bible is all about this God desperate to prove that he is trustworthy, that he is faithful, that he is compassionate, that he is loving, that he is merciful, that he is all-powerful, and that he can have that character without compromising his holiness. But so strong is that lie. This is not, you know, the plot of a movie down at the movie theatre. This is real time, real life now. So great is that lie that we just couldn't believe it. And so I live with it and you live with it. And it's that, did God really say? And could this really be true? And so as we know, he sends Jesus in human form, in human likeness. And this is where I want to get to Luke 4 and just go in detail through this. So if you want to turn to Luke 4. In Luke 4, Jesus has been baptised. He's been declared as God's son. And he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what you note when you look through this in, in greater detail is that he's actually giving us keys today in real time to reverse these lies and to reverse the curse that is over us as flesh and blood on this, on this earth. And so we go into 4 verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So you have a garden in the first story, you have a wilderness in the second story, you have the complete opposite. Having fallen and caved into the temptation and the deceit, humankind are separated from God's presence for their own protection. And they're now in wilderness. It sucks being in wilderness. Some of you might be in a spiritual or physical, I don't think Portland's a physical wilderness, but a spiritual wilderness, an emotional wilderness, a relational wilderness. Wilderness is stark, they're dry, they're barren, there is no reprieve, there is no sense of comfort or even just sustenance to your being and to your soul. Jesus is in a physical wilderness here, but just like Adam and Eve, there's some characters, but one character being the devil, and this whole notion of being tempted. But in this case, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. I don't know, has anyone here fasted before? Gosh, you're not meant to tell anybody. I said this to the morning crew. Your fast's a secret. Because <laughs> it's, it's deceit. It happens really easily. <laughs> it's awful. Hunger is horrible. I've gotten to the stage where I don't like even just being a little bit hungry, that discomfort. If you haven't eaten for a day, your body starts to realise it's in hunger mode, the metabolism shuts down. If you haven't eaten for a week, you start to go into full starvation mode. If you have not eaten or if you have not drunk water for 40 days, your body is eating itself. So you can imagine how ravenous Jesus is at this time. But what is happening here is so important because what fasting does is that fasting literally starves the flesh to create more for the spirit. Counselors will often say for people particularly who are struggling with addictions, try fasting. If you can control your gut, you'll be amazed what else you can control. 
that actually starts with the gut. And so Jesus entering in this wilderness, he's crying out. First thing he does after he's baptized is goes, I'm going to fast, I'm going into isolation, I'm going into the wilderness, and I'm going to be prepared for what is about to come. The enemy hates what is about to come, so he meets him there. And as he's hungry, he says the first test, if you were the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, if you're hungry and there's a stone there and you could turn it into bread, would you not? I know I struggle with it. If I just have that bit, it'll be okay. But for Jesus, it's way more overt than that. But just as Satan had tricked Eve and said, did God really say, he's doing the same thing with Jesus. He's twisting the truth to create doubt, to set in a temptation, to ensure that he turns his back on God. If You are the son of God. He's getting Jesus to prove his identity as man by betraying his identity as man. This is really important. What is happening in the wilderness, Jesus' divinity as fully God is not being tested. Satan is saying in this exchange Jesus, can you be human? In the garden where the temptation was, can humans, why don't you be like God? In the wilderness, the question is, God, can you be human? This is incredibly important. Scholars look at this. N.T. Wright, one of the world's best known New Testament theologians, looks at this and he says, do you know what the biggest misunderstanding in the church in the West is? is that we do not understand that Jesus was fully, completely human. I don't know if you've thought about it. For me, I just thought he was God with skin on, in human form. But throughout the ages, there are a number of heresies that have occurred, and it's quite possible, without even knowing it, that you've believed them as well. So one of them is that he was human in some ways, so physically, but not psychologically or emotionally. Somewhere that he was human, but it makes no difference. It's, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and some say that his deity was real, but his humanity was just an appearance. It was an a, a apparition of sorts. But the fact that he was fully and completely human is essential to our belief, to who we are as his followers and to what it is he calls us into because he gets it. He understands it. He's lived it. There is no temptation that comes against you that he does not understand, that he doesn't, hasn't had himself. He's able to relate to us in anything that has to do with the human condition. But most importantly, the reason why he's, he is human is because the first human, Adam, through that act of sin with Eve, puts the curse on everybody. And so great was that curse. But through this one man, human, fully human, how great would be the life that he could bring to many if he could stay that divine and perfect human. So this fact that his humanity is being tested is extremely important, but it also gives me courage and hope to know that you don't have to be God to beat Satan. So at this stage in my talk, halfway through, I'm calling this talk The Man Who Silenced Satan. 
And this man who silenced Satan gives us powerful keys to help us understand his strategies in our life and to how to put the antiseptic, which Ignaz Semmelweis introduced into the world of medicine, to help us dispose of the germs that are coming to bring death uh, around us and to our lives and those with us. So what Jesus says when he says, why don't you turn? If, if you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. What Jesus says is he says, instantly quotes Deuteronomy and he says, um, that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father. I feel like it's a very Christian answer. And because it's a very Christian answer, it's easy to just go, yeah, yeah, what, what happened next? But what he's actually saying is that if I am human, and I am, I'm not just pretending to be, I am fully, fully human, he knows that a human cannot meet their own needs. Let me say that again. You as human cannot meet your own needs. We think we can because we think we're God. And we can to an extent when it comes to um, the wages we have and the food that we can eat and choose and we have choice and abundance. But Jesus is saying that my greatest need is spiritual and bread is not going to satisfy. This is the girl in my church who literally escaped a refugee camp from Cambodia on the Thai border, who because of the trauma of what happened to her in the bones or the centre of her soul ends up addicted to a bunch of stuff in life out of fear of not having it anymore. Let's eat as much as we can because we may not have food tomorrow. Let's buy as much as we can because we may not be able to have a good life tomorrow. And it's a subconscious but powerful drive that drives spending. Has an encounter with the Holy Spirit who speaks to the wound, provides the true spiritual need of safety, identity, security, and then is a transformed person. This is the girl who walks in off a street, complete atheist, never really understood who God is, does Alpha, comes to know God, and prior to that is in like a whole cycle of binge eating, sex, and a whole bunch of other things, and then meets this this God, and before you know it, she's lost 30 kilos, which I think is about 18 pounds, has not wanted to have a drink since, has gone fully ab abstained, and cannot gush with just this good news of what has happened in the depths of her soul, that sex cannot even possibly begin to satisfy, because her true need is spiritual. And so what is happening here is that the world will say and the enemy will say to you, meet your own needs. And he'll even sometimes put a Christian lens over those things. And what the antidote is to that is that, or the answer to that is my greatest need is spiritual. And that is not going to satisfy. It might put a plug in it, but it's not going to satisfy, which is why when you buy those new pair of shoes, you want to buy another pair the next week because it just does not cut it. So the antiseptic in that for you to put on your hands, to wash your, your body with is voice recognition. You get to choose what voice you listen to. There are so many voices out there. There are so many voices in Portland. There are so many voices on your social media. There are so many voices going around in your head. There are so many things coming at you, friends, family, yourself. But there is a still small voice that is saying things specifically to you. 
And it's the voice of the good shepherd. And his children, his sheep, hear his voice and they know. And so when it comes to being able to silence Satan in your life, it starts with recognising, that is not the Australian accent, <laughs> recognising recognizing his voice. And there are some of you who hear that and go, yeah, I know what he said and my flesh is afraid of it, but I, I hear it, I know it. And the Lord is saying, I want you to put that in front and I want that to direct your next steps. I want you to posture yourself as if that's true and you can trust my character. There's some of you who are like, oh, I don't hear the voice. And if that's the case, you need a word. You need a word from him and it might come through someone else. It most likely will come through here. And this word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And there are two types of words. There's the logos word, which is like the generic word for all time, for all people at any stage. A bit like John 3.16, God so loved the world, gave his only son. It's the logos word. But then there's a rhema word. And a rhema word is when the Holy Spirit is... He's breathed on a word especially for you. And as you're reading Psalm 78, something happened. Might be little, but it might be big, but that voice is starting to speak. And so if you're struggling to hear that voice, I want to invite you to start reading the Psalms. Ask this shepherd for a word and let that direct your posture. So the first thing the enemy will do is he will get you to meet your own needs. And if you are trying to meet your own needs, you are trying to meet the wrong ones. There's a deeper one. There's a more spiritual one that the Holy Spirit and God wants to meet. He has a word for you. And at the end of it, he's saying, do you trust me? Adam and Eve had a choice. Israel had a choice. You have a choice. We get to turn this thing around by choosing to trust Looking at verse 5 to 7, he tries something else and he says, So the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, but it has been delivered to me and I can give it to whomever I will. If you will just bow down and worship me, it will be yours. I'm confused by this one. I'll tell you why, because Satan is offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. I'm pretty sure you know that Jesus gets all the kingdoms of the world. But what Satan is doing is so clever and so subtle. He's tempting Jesus with his very calling. And he's doing it in a way that provides a shortcut. No suffering, no misunderstanding. No betrayal, no persecution, no crown of thorns, no nails in his hands. No betrayal from his friends. And Jesus is alone here. No one's watching this happen. He could easily do so, but to do so would be to worship the enemy. Remember, the chief dispute in the universe is over who has authority and who will be worshipped. So this was a very clever temptation. But one of the reasons Jesus doesn't give in to this is he knows that if he was to give in to this one, you, myself, your friends, your brothers and sisters here would not be able to participate in this kingdom of God. That he pushes through this because, yes, he can achieve this in his own means, 
But without his death and without his resurrection, without the suffering, without him doing it the Lord's way in obedience and submission to the Father, you and I don't get to be part of the table. There is something about who you are that, for, as Hebrews says, that for the joy set before him, he endures the cross, bearing its shame, and then sits down at the right hand of God. You are the joy set before him. We are the joy set before him. Humanity, it is a must for him that humanity is with him and that what, what, was, what was broken is restored, that the glory that was stolen can be given back, that the lies were deposited can be replaced with truth. And he says no. And that's his motivation. But his whole heart and his posture is one of obedience. It doesn't matter how tempting. He cannot do God's will the devil's way. He chooses to do God's will, God's way, with complete submission and surrender to this God. And so where Satan will get humans to fill their own need, the second thing he'll do is he'll get you to fulfill God's plan for your life, your way, without submission, on your own terms, fueled by disordered desires, and in conformity with the world. And this can happen with obvious stuff, and there's obvious stuff we can list. But I want to talk about the not obvious stuff. I want to talk about just normal human condition. I want to talk about the stuff that can even look Christian, but may not be. I want to talk about the ways in which the enemy's scheme is so strong that we will do things that are evil in the name of good. And this is endemic in our world at the moment. This is everywhere. This is where our city is seduced by this and our America is seduced by this and it's such a strong thing around the victim mentality that the victim wins, but what happens if the victim's actually evil? And this is something that is strong right through. I easily can look past this because I'm a pastor and so I can get away with lots, right, because I'm doing stuff for God. But I've found in ministry, if your job is to usher in and pioneer the kingdom of God around you, if there is an area in your life that isn't reigned by the kingdom of God, the king is in on it. He wants to be a pastor. And I had this situation where for a while, God was really wrestling with my idolism and my perfectionism, and I gave up the obvious stuff, but then he wanted to go one deeper. And he goes, I want to deal with your organization. I want to deal with the fact that the sound isn't quite right. I want to deal with the fact that you're still wanting to do my stuff for the glory of me, but your heart is not surrendered to me in it. And there's a thing called control. And it's so entrenched in the fibre of your being, you're not even aware of its influence. And it is not honouring to me, and it is not worshipping me, and for me to do what I want to do in you, I need this bit as well. So I'm not even talking about, like, the obvious stuff. I'm talking about, like, can we please get the budget signed off? Like, stuff that should happen for good stewardship. I'm talking about the need for um, things to be organised so the church can flourish, so for good stuff. But God's like, no, because your heart is not right and I need to go after it. So he went after this in, in quite a strong way. And I remember one day we had uh, bought a building similar to what you guys have done and God had provided the funds similar to what he's going to do for you guys. And it was opening Sunday 
And the week beforehand, it's a whole other talk, we had genuinely experienced significant spiritual opposition. There's normal hardship in life, and then there's like a certain flavour that kicks in when the enemy does not want unity and he does not want this to go well. It was pretty obvious. The germs were real. You could see them this time. And we walked in on the Tuesday. The opening is on the Sunday. And I rock up to work. Someone had mowed the lawns. It was so great. I'm like, yeah, someone's mowed the lawns because they know that there's an opening but the edges were like really high, like not a little bit high, but really high. Does this happen in Portland or are you guys like all like you do the full lawn thing and it's okay? And it wasn't like, it doesn't matter if you're a perfectionist or got high expectations, you would notice this was the case, right? So I rock up and I am like, oh, of course. So we've done the, we've done the lawns, but of course the edges aren't done. Like, oh, what would I know? Because I've got high expectations and I don't even know what's real and what's not anymore. So I'm, I, the girl rant. And Mark, my colleague, who a lot of you know, um, let me have my girl rant. And then he sat, we sat down and he said, Sarah, would it help you to know that if God wants the edges done for Sunday, the edges will get done? <laughs> if that was not from the Spirit of God, I'm pretty sure I might have slapped him. But I had enough voice recognition to realize that was covered in the fragrance and the freedom of the Holy Spirit. And it was like, you know, when like a javelin comes from heaven, it's straight into your heart, transcends the mind, goes here, and then the Holy Spirit goes. It was like that. I'm like, I'm so confused, God, I've just got to leave this to you. I'm, I'm done. I give, you know, not in a resigned way, but just in a surrendered way, like, take the lawns. That's Tuesday, Friday, I'm meeting with one of our staff members and I hear the sound of, um, of garden machinery. We call it whippersnippers. <laughs> Is that really Aussie, a whippersnipper? You guys call it like a weed basher or something? <laughs> weed whacker? Yeah, much better. And I hear the sound of a weed, whack, a weed whacker going <laughs> in the outside. And I'm like, my ears prick up, my soul pricks up, my heart pricks up. I'm like, <gasps> and my colleague says, do you hear that? I went, oh, yeah, I hear that. She said, oh, that's Craig. Craig's her husband. That's her dad does not even go to our church, who had driven by the day before, saw the edges were long, because anyone would have seen that were long. <laughs> Knew that the opening was on Sunday, had the afternoon off, and came back with his weed waka masha thing, and of the goodness of his own heart. And I'm just there, just got tears, you know those real soulful ones? And just this kiss from God. And I'm like, of course. Of course, so God to look after his garden. But that's just the lawn edges. What is it that is in your life? that it's the right thing but the wrong way. And he's more interested in your heart. He's more interested in it being shaped by the kingdom than he is the right thing happening. Because the kingdom of God is within you and it starts there and the externals, they're up to him. But the enemy will go, no, got to do it the world's way. And that voice is really, really strong. But Jesus says, no, because I cannot worship anything but God. 
antiseptic to this trick of the enemy, where the first one is voice recognition and hearing that voice of the shepherd, the antiseptic to this one is obedience. Your greatest act of worship is your obedience. When you take a step forward in obedience to what the voice of the shepherd is telling you, in the spirit, you're providing antiseptic to kill the germs. And as you walk in that obedience, you just become the antidote to the atmosphere around you and you start to break down the powers and principalities. My active obedience in that actually started to undo and dissolve a bunch of spiritual activity that was going on in our church. Why? Because as leader, what I do and how I do it matters. And if my primary role is to usher in and herald the kingdom of God, then my whole heart and posture and soul has to actually be shaped by that kingdom of God. And when I'm not walking like that, I actually become a tool in the hands of the enemy without even knowing it. And the spirits of religion get stronger. The spirits of perfection get stronger. The spirits of control get stronger. And it disempowers people who are needing to walk into freedom for that. So obedience. Enemy doesn't give up. He's tried two things, hasn't worked. So get this, he's so clever. Both times, Jesus has used the word of God to shut him up. And so this time, the enemy uses the word of God, which is very annoying. So verse 9. So he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear up, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I'm very confused by this. This is Psalm 91. The enemy knows God's word. Not helpful. But if I wasn't preparing this message, I would not have looked into this further. I'm like, God, I don't understand this. Do not put your Lord, your God, to the test, which is his answer, by the way. No, because I will not put the Lord, my God, to the test. I'm like, what's this test? What is this testing thing? I don't know what you think it is, but Jesus is pretty passionate about it. In fact, it's one of the three major things that the enemy will do to derail God's plan for your life to derail what he's got for Bridgetown. What's this test business? When you look at this passage, all of Luke 4, Jesus quotes the Bible each time, and each quote comes from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. And Deuteronomy is the story and the history of the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness where God is testing his people to be a nation that he can use to actually show the other nations who the true God is. God tests humans. For Jesus to do this, it would be humans testing God. We test God all the time. Why? Because of the lie in our soul that we think we are God and he has to prove himself to us. Testing God is the opposite of trusting God. We test God when we give him an ultimatum. I will do this if. We test God when we throw out something that we want him to see him move on, but we stay behind the safe line without participating in trust to actually move with him. Psalm 78 talks about this and it says it's like someone who is like in the string of a violin or a bow, but it's not taut or tight, so it can't actually make a sound. 
didn't know that the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son so desperately want to make a sound through you. It's unique to you. Your faith journey is your own. It is not to be replicated. Other people's faith journey isn't replicated. It is own. It is your own and it is individual to you. And he wants you to sound like a symphony orchestra as a church as you all play your part with him as the conductor. But for those of us that are testing God, where we're staying where it's safe, where it's up to God to prove himself, we're not in tune. And the sound doesn't work. And that is a natural human condition because trust is hard. It has to be earned. But the whole time, the whole narrative of your story and your life is God saying, do you trust me? And the enemy saying, did God really say? Could it really be true? And so where the world will say, which is code for the devil, God has to prove himself. Jesus says, no, I trust in who he is and what he has done, and I remember. And so the antiseptic is to trust. The Arabic word for trust is like to throw yourself down in complete and utter reliance. Is there anything going on in your life right now where the Holy Spirit is actually saying to you, I don't want to save, oh yeah, I believe in God, but I'm safe. Or his voice is actually calling you out. And you get, I've got more, I want to do more, I want to speak more, I want to heal more. And I want you to be in a position where you're like, okay, this is go time. This is us in trust. This is not me in the glass box with the glass ceiling so I can see it good and I can see where it is, but I'm not actually participating. But I'm polishing my vinyl floor and it looks great. This is no, let's push through the ceiling with an active thrust to push that roof off, to participate so he can bring you up and show you higher heights with a bigger perspective. So the enemy will get you to doubt that. He'll get you to know the truth. He'll get you to know the word without the spirit. And so this word from Psalm 91 is truth. It's God's word, but it has no spirit. And Jesus, as the Son, knows that it's not what the Spirit is asking of him. And so he says, no. I trust in, he, in who God is and what he has done. I will remember. And at that third temptation, I love this. Then that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He doesn't give up. He's going to come back. He's going to try again. He tried through the disciples. He tried through the Pharisees. He tried through a whole series of things to get him off his purpose and off his track. And then he ultimately tries in the Garden of Gethsemane, another sweet little reversal of what's going on in the themes of the Bible. But the whole time, Jesus is looking at the face of his father. He is not looking to the left. He is not looking to the right. He is not listening to the voice of the religious people. He is not looking to the voice of his friends. And he's saying, I choose to trust you no matter what. Because just maybe, just maybe you're the one who's going to hold all authority. And just maybe you're the one who's going to get all the worship of the universe. And just maybe you're the only one who deserves it. And so we have this man who silenced Satan. And he did it because he was fully human, but he was in full step with the Father. And he could have sinned if he chose to, but he didn't because he trusted the Father. And he could do it 
Because as verse 1 of chapter 4 says, full of the Holy Spirit. That is so key. You cannot do this without the Holy Spirit. I cannot do this without the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is central to this. It was central to Jesus' success. And too many of us try to live our faith, our trust and our obedience out of the flesh. It doesn't work. Because the flesh is just dead. Jesus goes, I give you new life by the Spirit. I want to waken up the Spirit man. I want, I want you to live your faith through the Spirit, not through the flesh. So as we gather together to continue worship and Gerald and Bethany and those people will do their thing, I'm going to close in prayer that this Holy Spirit would come and speak to you right now.